Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. Uh, welcome to the podcast. This is episode 53. Uh, today is 24 September. And uh, might as well do the, pl- uh, the Twitter plug now. We're on Twitter, at Defense underscore podcast. If you have the time, check us out. Podcast supports the show, and the show uh, more or less supports the podcast. If there's something heavy going on during the week that I don't do a show, I'll throw something on Twitter. And if I do something on the show that I probably didn't explain very well, then I'll throw it on Twitter. So if you like the podcast, you probably like Twitter. Um, might as well get started. First story we're going to do is about the V-22 Osprey, the CV-22, which is the Air Force version. It's back in the news. This story is from, where's the date? 22, 22 September, a couple of days ago from Breaking Defense, Valerie and Senna, who we've done stories before. Uh, article is called AFSOC Commander Cautiously Optimistic on V-22 Clutch Problem, Though Root Cause is Elusive. Just to recap, um, the Ospreys were temporarily grounded, the, the AFSOC version, which is the CV-22. So real quick, there's three variants. Uh, there's CV-22, which is the AFSOC Air Force Special Operations Command version, Air Force, MV-22, which is the Marine Corps version, and then there's a CMV-22, which is the Navy carrier version. So AFSOC grounded their uh, CV-22s, when was that? 17 August. And the reason what is because there was these hard clutch engagements. So let me just get to the article. So after temporary grounding the CV-22 in, uh, inventory last month, which was in August, uh, the head of AFSOC Special, Special Operations Command, who is Lieutenant General Jim Slife, believes the V-22 Enterprise is finally on a path to fix a potentially dangerous issue that's plagued operations for years. Uh, there have been 15 hard-clutch engagements across the V-22 fleet, which includes the MV-22s and the CMV-22s, Marine Corps and Navy, since 2010, and four have occurred with AFSOC CV-22s. Uh, just to recap, the issue is when this thing called a Sprague clutch which is a component in the propeller rotor gearbox that allows the engine to drive the rotor, slips driving all the torque from one engine to another before re-engaging and sending the torque back to the initial engine. Uh, That massive shift in load happens in fractions of a second, General Slife said. So a couple of quotes here from General Slife. He said uh, the second AFSOC CV-22 related incident happened in 2020, and he called it a pretty significant feat of airmanship to get this airplane safely on the ground. Since then, Slife said he became dissatisfied, that's his quote, with the progress of the V-22-JPO Joint Program Office had made to resolve the problem. Um, so there were two more incidents that occurred this summer in a matter of six weeks, and General Slife stood the whole flight operations for all 52 of them that they have down on August 17th. AFSOC cleared the CV-22s for flight again on September 2nd, 
after it puts some risk mitigation techniques into place, even though the root cause has still not been found. So what, what mitigations are they going to do? Uh, let's see, there's three of them that I found. The first one is they were going to have uh, crews to tr- trained in simulators on what to do if a hard clutch engagement occurs. The second thing will be that pilots will not be instructed to push the f- throttle to full powder on, power on takeoff, but rather bring the power to, f- to full more slowly. And the third thing is, in the midterm, they are going to instigate a new requirement to change the Sprague clutch after a certain number of flight hours. So right now, the program office is still collecting data on gearboxes to see when those clutches should be replaced. But generally, the problem has occurred with gearboxes at the middle of their originally proposed life cycle. So there you go, three things. Uh, try to replicate it in simulators, change the way the procedures for taking off, and then replace the, the Sprague clutch in the middle of its life cycle. And what else? And of course, in the long term, the V-22 Enterprise hopes to narrow down a root cause for the problem so a technical fix can be put into place, finally solving the issue once and for all. Um, it's reported that no injury or deaths had been caused by the hard clutch engagement problem. And the Navy Marine Corps have opted to keep their V-22s flying, even though the U.S. Air Force grounded theirs back in August. Uh, the Marine Corps made a comment that hard clutch issues have been known to the Marine Corps since 2010, and we have trained our pilots to react with appropriate emergency control procedures. And they also remain engaged with the JPO and our industry partners to resolve the issue of the root cause. And that's pretty much it. So three things that the Air Force is doing, our AFSOC's doing to try to mitigate the risk. All right, I'll pause there for one second. Now, last episode, we talked about uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia war in Ukraine, and impacts on uh, American defense or U.S. defense stockpiles, <coughs> excuse me, inventories, whatever you want to call it. There's a really good article from, I think it's Breaking Defense. Yeah, Breaking Defense, again, one of my go-to sites, uh, from Christina McKenzie on September 22, yep, two days ago. And it's about France, how France aims to streamline and simplify arms act, ar, hmm, how France aims to streamline, simplify arms and ammo acquisition. And it's an article basically with a lot of quotes from the French de- defense minister, Sebastian Le Corneau, Le Cornu, L-E-C-O-R-N-U, Le Cornu. Uh, basically, he says in times of war, we need to go fast and take risk. We need a different approach. So it. The reason why I'm doing this article is because I like the acquisition stuff anyway. And of course, you know, in the U.S., we have the three, you know, major contributors to the defense acquisition process. You have the defense acquisition process itself, uh, and you have the JSIDs, which is uh, kind of the requirements. The requirements, the concepts and requirements are written the J, under the JSIDs, and then uh, defense acquisition. You know, they take it, they go to industry, and they build whatever it is to be built. And, of course, that's all done by the budget. They call it PPBE. But, you know, you can't have any of that stuff unless you got money. So it's three kind of – that's how the U.S. system works. So anyway, I thought it would be a good article, uh, a good you – know, to talk about how the French approach the same thing. So uh, the article begins, Like the U.S., the conflict in Ukraine has shown the French, French military that it must simplify its procurement procedures and ensure the armed force stocks of ammunition are built up. 
as the company raises its geostrategic alert level. Uh, let's see, Defense Minister Sebastian Lacornu told media uh, that uh, the acquisition process is onerous, complicated, and a luxury of peacetime. Uh, in times of war, apparently referring to Russia and Ukraine, we need to go fast and take risk, and we need a different approach. Uh, even the French president said that uh, ask industry to go faster, think differently about production rates, ramp up in order to be able to quickly reconstitute stocks of equipment indispensable for our armed forces, our allies, and those whom we want to help. Obviously, Ukraine. Let's see. So here's where it gets kind of interesting. The Minister of the Armed Forces, the guy we just talked about, has three levels for qualifying geostrategic developments. The three are competition, dispute, and confrontation. And according to a statement published by the ministry, the war in Ukraine has pushed France into the dispute alert level, which is the middle one. This evolution of threat implies a necessary adaption for our production tool. So this guy is issuing guidance. Uh, what's his name again? Le Cornu. His guidance is, there are four points. Number one, and I think they're pretty common sense. Uh, number one is focus on quality and simplicity. Uh, he wants procurement requirements issued by the ministry to focus as much on production c- capacities as on design. Innovation should not stand in the way of simplicity. Uh, each option on a piece of equipment is an obstacle to speed of manufacturing. So simplicity is important. Let's see. Oh, and he says the more options you have, the more sophisticated the equipment, the more complicated it is, the less rust, the less rustic it becomes, and the longer it takes to produce. I wonder if he actually used the word rustic. I wonder what the French word for rustic is. Anyway, number two, streamline the acquisition process. Boy, if you could figure that out, let everybody know. Uh, that was a joke. All right, so streamline the acquisition process. The minister noted that uh, the notions of risk and dangers evolve considerably and require a change of approach to acquisition. Uh, it is essential for administrative procedures for manufacturers to be simplified. There's, they want a process that will simplify procedures while not sacrificing the requirement for quality. Again, if you figure that out, you can share that with everybody. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to lower our standards of quality, but unquestionably we need to know how to take a few risks, including our procedures, by reducing them. So I talk about the American system. The American system's got this uh, MTA um, which seems to be working pretty good. Anyway, I don't want to get into all that. That's the American system. Uh, bring home tech and pr- pr- protect the supply chain, uh, which is good. Once manufacturers relocate their subcontractors in France, or at least their European units, who's not to be dependent on foreign know-how and to protect French knowledge. Oh, to protect French know-how. COVID crisis has shown us that anything that is not produced on our territory, or at least European territory, cannot be considered as a secure supply source. And number four, prepare for the long term. The war in Ukraine has revealed how important it is to have stocks, particularly of ammunition. It's all common sense stuff. Um, I'll keep going. So here we go. This is where it gets a little interesting. So for their part, manufacturers are committed to significantly accelerate production of priority materials. For example, 155 millimeter shells need to be delivered in three months instead of nine. Where have we heard that? Last week, 
our last episode, we talked about the Honorable Doug Bush talking about 155 is kind of a priority, and it was referred to somewhere else. Probably Mark Kansian's article about 155s, and now here the French are saying the same thing. So 155 shells need to be delivered in three months instead of nine. And then they talk about the Caesar gun, which, I, you know, we tweeted about the Caesar gun, I think. If you look on our tweet, probably a few months ago. Anyway, the Caesar gun, 18 of which have been given to Ukraine, Proust and France, of course, will be produced in 12 months, half the time that is currently done, according to the ministry. So I guess it takes 24 months to build one of those suckers. Now they want to do it in 12. Uh, the need for speed is not just thinking in France. The same reflection is taking, a plus, taking place across the Western world, which we confirmed last episode. And then finally, I haven't heard this before, but he told the media he's discussed with industry the risks of espionage and sabotage in the coming weeks and months, including Cold War practices, which we thought were behind us. We have instances of industrial espionage over the past few years, which entails stealing a technology to take it home. Sabotage is something else that harms the production chain, and you can understand the dramatic effects that we have. Uh, we, have, we have noticed and are keeping eye on a certain number of actions, which I cannot say more because they are confidential. Hmm. Anyway, and that's pretty much it. That's the article. So that's the French take uh, on how to do their acquisition. They want to speed it up. They want to take, uh, take some risk, I suppose. And uh, I think everybody agrees with that. And I, I think the U.S. defense acquisition process is... Uh, I don't want to comment it, but I don't think it's that bad. I mean, you got to take some risk somewhere. and uh, But there are reasons for all the stuff that's in there. And some of them are regulatory. Some of them are mandatory from Congress. But anyway, we're not going to go down that road. I'll pause here one second. Okay, so the next story is Army story, and it's about uh, Switchblade. Switchblade is always a popular subject. Every time I put Switchblade in the uh, title of uh, an episode, I get pretty good hits on that one. Um, anyway, Whatever that means. So the, this is from Defense Post, and I hardly use these this this site. I'm gonna have to start using it. Uh, Defense Post is pretty good, and there's a story from Rojef Manuel it's from September 23, 2022, which was just yesterday. And the article is: U.S. Army awards air environment loitering missile. Con- I'm gonna learn how to talk one of these days. U.S. Army awards air environment. Loitering Missile Systems Contract. Now, of course, Aero Environment uh, makes a lot of stuff for the U.S. Army. They make the Raven. They make the Puma. They make the Switchblade. So the story jumps right off. U.S. Tactical, um, US Tactical Aviation and Ground Munitions has awarded Aero Environment $20.6 million contract to deliver Switchblade 300 Tactical Missile Systems, also known as TMS. $20.6 million. It doesn't say how many. Um, works in this agreement were managed by the U.S. Army Contractor Command and Redstone Arsenal. So who is this U.S. Army Tactical Aviation Ground Munitions? They're part of uh, PEO, which is Program Executive Office. Uh, and they under PEO what? One day I have to do a show on the PEOs and where they're at and all that stuff. But for right now, PEO, Program Executive Office, Missiles in Space, that's who the PAO is. Usually it's like a heavy, like a one-star general, somebody heavy in charge of it. And then they have little sections underneath it. And in this case, one of their sections is the Program Office, or the Program Manager, also known as PM. If you're ever PM, that's what they're talking about. And the PM for this is Tactical Aviation Ground Munitions. 
also known as Tagum. They're out of Redstone Arsenal, which is a great place. We've talked about Huntsville before. So what is Tagum responsible for besides Switchblade? Their portfolio is pretty darn interesting. And I'll read some of the stuff. I'll just read their mission statement. So Tagum uh, Project Office mission is to develop, field, sustain, versatile air and ground launched air and ground launched weapon systems for U.S. Army Joint and Coalition Warfighters. Uh, to provide a joint, divide a decisive advantage in joint all-domain operations. Where have we heard that before? So here's some of the stuff in their portfolio. Obviously, Switchblade now. Um, Hellfire missile. Uh, joint air-to-ground air missile, JAGM, which I think is being adopted by the U.S. Army for Apaches and the Marine Corps with their Viper helicopters. Uh, Hydra folding fin aerial rockets, probably for a helicopter. Mm, javelin missile system. They're, they're responsible for Javelin and the tow. And lethal miniature air aerial missile system, LMAMS, which I do believe this switchblade is, could be considered an LMAMS, lethal, lethal miniature aerial missile system. And missiles and rocket launchers. I assume missiles would be, you know, AT-4. I'm sorry, that'd be a rocket launcher, wouldn't it? Not a missile. Rocket launcher like AT-4. Or maybe even the Carl Gustav. I don't know. Anyway, that, that's who Tagum is. All right, moving on. Uh, let's see. Aerial environment, 20.6 million. Okay. Okay, developed by the U.S. Army for, deployed by the U.S. Army for more than a decade. Switchblade 300 remains a critical force protection and soldier lethality solution for our customers, including Ukraine, Aero Environment Vice President, and TMS Man General Managers, Brett Hush says. Now, I don't know if that's true. Maybe the Army's deployed it, but I don't think the BCTs have deployed it. So, according to Brett Hush, uh, somebody in the, in the Army has been using it for more than a decade, but I don't know if it's been the BCTs. He doesn't say. It closes the gap between observation and action, giving soldiers the ability to identify threats and engage hostile beyond line of sight targets with greater distance and minimal, minimal collateral damage. So what is this Switchblade 300? We talked, uh, we posted something on Switchblade 300 on Twitter. I know we did, probably a few months ago. Uh, real quick, Switchblade 300 is a multi-pack launcher that gives operators an advantage in rapid response force protection. It can be set up, and it can be set up for launch in less than two minutes. It's integrated with sensor to Shooter technology, sensor to shooter technology. Man, that's an MDO word there, isn't it? Uh, a phrase there. That combines the capabilities of air environment, small drones, and switchblades, co combat-proven accuracy. Uh, the weapon can be launched up to 6 miles or 10K with an altitude of 500 feet. It has a speed of 63 to 100 miles per hour. It achieves lethality precision, low collateral effects through the assistance of real-time GPS coordinates, live feed, from dual front and side electro-optical infrared stabilized pan-tilt camera. So it can see, it's got a day camera and a night camera with thermal. It's interoperable with the common ground controller for aero environments, Raven, Puma, and Wasp drones. So Raven, we know, is an Army drone, probably at company level. Puma is probably, I don't know, battalion level. And Wasp, I don't know who the heck uses Wasp. I should have did my homework on that before reporting on this. I think the Marine Corps used WASP. Uh, let me pause here. I'll tell you. Anyway, it looks like the Air Force uses the WASP. I think it's the size between maybe a Puma and a Raven, 
somewhere in between, maybe smaller than a raven. Anyway, maybe I'll do, maybe I'll do something on Twitter on the wasp. Let me write this down, wasp. So anyway, that's it. Uh, let me get back to the article. Um, earlier this month, oh, so okay, the article continues. I'm sorry. Earlier this month, Air Environment secured an $8.5 million contract from U.S. Department of Defense to deliver Puma 3 AE drones to an allied nation. Wonder who that was. Don't know. Uh, in July, I guess we can guess. In July, the Army awarded Air Environment a modification for the Puma drones. And a company later received a $20.86 million contract in September to provide a separate batch of waterproof drone of the waterproof drones to two un, undisclosed uh, nations. Now I'm assuming uh, in the article, because one minute we're talking about uh, Switchblade, and then then they say, okay, you know, the Switchblade controller can be used by Puma, Raven, and and wasp and then we switch to pumas going to an allied nation which we assume who it is and then uh, the army said we want pumas for ourselves but we want a contract modification for additional ones and then they starts talking about uh waterproof drones to t- i'm assuming they're talking about switchblades so we go back to switchblades at the end of the article but bottom line is you know 20.6 for army switchblades and then we start talking about Pumas, 8.5 mil. And then we start talking about Pumas again. And then we start talking about 20.6 mil for, I think, uh, switchblades. So bottom line, this aero environment has got the corner market on small UAS for the DOD. Um, kind of like SIG does for the pistol and the, uh, the next-gen rifle and automatic rifle. All right, I think that's it. Where are we at? 22 minutes? I got time for one more story. And this is going to be a quick one. Uh, multi-domain task force. They just uh, the United States Army just started the third multi-domain task force. We did a whole show on it. We knew that there was going to there's supposed to be five of them. Uh, two in the Pacific, one in Europe. There's three. One in the Arctic, assuming Alaska. That's four. And the fifth one is going to be. Uh, like a global response, and they were still like, well, I got to write that down because they're supposed to announce where that fifth one was going to be. I think you should put it at Fort Bragg, right? Or Fort Bliss, somewhere like that. So MDF number five, MDTF number five, where is it going to go? But anyway, number three has been activated as of 23 September, which was yesterday down at Fort Shafter, Hawaii. So this is the one dedicated to the Pacific. Real quick, this is from the Army. Uh, Russell K. Shamuka, uh, Army website, Army.mil article, Multi-Domain Task Force. Uh, article title is Multi-Domain Task Force Activated for Indo-Pacific Duty at Fort Shafter. They had a four-star there, the uh, USERPAC, United States Army Pacific. USERPAC Commander General Charles Flynn was like the host of the thing. So you got a four-star general for a brigade size element. That's a big deal. They did it at Historic Palm Circle. They unfurled their colors in front of assembled leaders and soldiers. Uh, let's see. If you've ever been down to Fort Shafter, if you ever go to, go to Honolulu, if you ever make it there, Honolulu, go to Fort Shafter. They got historic palm circles. Just magnificent. It's beautiful. Uh, I really don't want to talk about the multi-domain task force. The bottom line is they're at Fort Shafter. That's the third one. So the Army's moving out on this. Um, 
And while we're talking about the Army, this is an older story, but I think it's important. It's from September 2nd. And the Army announced, so this is an older story, but I thought I'd, since I was talking about the MDF getting stood up, I might as well talk about this. Army announces upcoming 2nd ABCT, 1st ID, 1st Infantry Division, uh, unit rotation. So, uh, th- like I said, this is from sec- sec- uh, 2nd of September. So, 2nd Armored Brigade Combat Team, 1st ID, they're out of Fort Riley, Kansas, of course. They are going to replace the 3rd Armored Brigade Combat Team, 4th ID, as part of a regular rotation of forces to support the US, United States Committed Atlantic Resolve. So that's 3-4 out of Fort Carson is coming home, and 2nd Brigade, 1st ID, the Big Red 1, is going to Europe. Doesn't say when they're going, but they announced it over a month ago. And also, uh, announcement from the same day, 2-2 September, the 2nd Striker Brigade, 2nd ID, 2-2-I from Fort Lewis or Joint Base Lewis-McChord, wherever you want to call it, is going to Korea. They are going to replace the 1st Brigade, 1st uh, Armored Brigade, 1st Armored Division. They're out of Fort Bliss, Texas, and they're going to Korea. And this is the 1st Striker Brigade to deploy to Korea as a rotational force. Uh, remember, that that's been they've been doing that for years. Um sending an armored brigade to Korea as a rotation. And, uh, but now there's armored brigades are so busy in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, they took the armored brigade out of Korea and they replaced them with a striker brigade. And the first brigade did, and we covered that. I think we even did a podcast on it. I think anyway, the first time it's happening is coming up and it, the call came to two, two I out of, uh, Fort Lewis or, Joint Base Lewis McCord, wherever you want to say. So anyway, that's pretty much it. We're at 26 minutes and one second. We're done. Uh, pretty decent episode, I think. We covered a lot of ground. Um, reminder, we're on Twitter at Defense underscore Podcasts. If you can possibly find the time, check us out. I am going to tweet something on the WASP. And also, uh, I was curious, since they've just started the third Multi-domain task force. I'm wondering what soldier, uh, soldier, shoulder sleeve insignia those units are wearing. Uh, generally, in the U.S. Army, separate brigades uh, have their own patch. For example, 173rd Airborne has their own patch. Uh, 197th Infantry Brigade has their own patch. Now, if you're in 1st Brigade, 1st uh, ID, First Infantry Division, you don't you wear the First Infantry Division patch, the division patch. You don't wear it. First Brigade, First ID don't have its own patch. But if you're a separate brigade, you get your own shoulder sleeve insignia, like 173rd out in Italy. And I'm wondering if the multi-domain task force is going to have their own patch. I assume they would, but I'm not sure. I'm going to look that up. And if I if I find something, I will put that on Twitter as well. So there's some homework for me. I'm writing that down. M D T F. Shoulder sleeve and figment, SSI. Okay, that's it. So I told you about Twitter, and that's it. So I'm wrapping it up 27 minutes and 27 seconds. Thank you very much for, for listening. Uh, hope you like the podcast. I hope you keep coming back. That's pretty much it. Episode number 53 is in the books. Thank you, and good night.